0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Welcome everyone. So I thought we'd take a little time to reflect together as a large group on um, our experiences of gratification and the allure of sensuality. And not to be afraid of it, to really watch out for the obvious shadows, you know, especially when we study the Buddhist teachings, it can seem, and, and also just from our own experience, where we have felt <clears throat> at times betrayed by our desire for sense experience. And then, it's like Joko Beck says, it's the promise that's never kept. And so we can excuse me, develop a bad attitude, about the world of sense experience like well if you're not here to make me happy if you're not going to make me happy then what good are you right don't we have that attitude sometimes about life and the life of sense experience like you've had a long enough time to make me happy to deliver the goods and yet you haven't in a way that has been meaningful to me so i'm about fed up so I'm going to give you one more week, <laughs> and then that's it. I'm shutting my heart down to the world. And you know, in the, in the tradition, the Buddha warns against both the indulging in sens- sensuality, expecting sensuality to deliver happiness, but he also warns about the rejecting of sensuality as a means to be happy, that both don't work. Thinking that sensuality, sense experience, is really going to deliver happiness is a dead end. Thinking that rejecting sensuality, sense experience, is a dead end doesn't lead to happiness. So that's that's literally the way the Buddha defined the middle way, the path that he was teaching. It's like not that and not that one. Right? So instead of like articulating this is the way, he said, "Don't indulge in sensuality." And don't reject it. And then you have a sense of what what we're doing here. So um, remember the the real point these last couple weeks and even now with our discussion, and hopefully we're not going to stop doing this, but especially these last few weeks, the whole point was to bring into view ordinary moments of delight, appreciating sense experience and really getting interested in the experience of gratification itself. So hopefully last week in your small group you shared, but it also I thought it would be nice here to talk a little bit, you know, to talk about where, like, where in your life your mind, your heart is somewhat enchanted in the habit of indulging sensuality, like Wynn and I, I saw when just walked in the room, true confessions. We went to the co-op today, presumably to buy groceries, which we did buy, but also <laughs> to experiment with sensuality in the form of chocolate chips. <laughs> and uh, I don't know about when because we separated. She dropped me off here after we went shopping. But, you know as we continued our experimentation, you know, it's just interesting to get close to that experience. Because it's funny how a lot of times when we are having a sense treat, let's call it, that we want to not really be there. Like we want to be watching a video or reading the newspaper or... But like when's the last time when we were going to do something sensual, let's just say, like take a nice bath have something delicious to eat, something that we find delicious to eat, you know, feeling the sun on the body. Took my shirt off for a few moments this afternoon and just sat in the sun and felt the warmth. But how many times when we're actually the mind-body actually intimate with something pleasurable, do we get interested in the pleasantness of it? It's just interesting how we... Don't give it the time of day. So hopefully we did, because I'm going to open it up in just a second. So places in your life where you feel drawn to sense experience, uh, sense pleasures, Um, what you've learned when you give yourself or that sense pleasure just shows up naturally. And then what is it like when it's over? What do you notice in the mind? What's that experience like? when you've had some chocolate or you've had your nice bath or you've had your moment with your cat or listened to your favorite song or whatever it might be, and then what's it like after the gratification? What does the heart feel like? There it would be really nice to hear from some folks about that. And then another way to to share is... Uh, to reflect out loud for the group, you know, um, just about, just generally about your level of happiness. You know, when you, like, when you say to yourself, when you ask yourself, am I a happy person? Do I think I'm happy? And let's say you say, yeah, I'm kind of happy. I think I'm happy. Then, like, what comes to our mind when you assess your happiness? Like, what supporting evidence comes to mind that's sort of interesting so you can kind of do that now maybe a few people can share this from this kind of question so yeah i'm happy but when i you know when i am asked to support that i'm happy what do i what do i want to point to i'm happy because i know i'm happy because right? And you could, you could say, oh, I'm unhappy because, right? So it's just sort of interesting to notice how the self-evaluation about like how I'm doing as a human being, how we generally the evidence that we point to whether we're happy or sad is like these pleasant or unpleasant experiences. So just to kind of, and then as you notice yourself doing that, just say like, is that true? Like if you're really cold or really hot or really have pain in your body now and so, okay, so I'm unhappy. You know, so and then when you just kind of deconstruct that, no, is that really true? That the pain in my knee is the same as the unhappiness I think I am? Or the fact that I've got my paycheck in my pocket or I, you know, had this nice experience today, that means I'm happy. I mean, I can see how it's in the story, but like, when you look at it more honestly, clearly, is that really? Does it add up for you? Does it make sense for you? And I'll just ask one more question, then open it up. I have lots of questions here, but but one thing that I thought was sort of interesting, especially because a number of us in the center, maybe most of us in our own way, you know, we've been looking a lot more at justice issues. I hope. It um, just seems like we should all take advantage of what's going on uh, just generally in, the, in our communities where we're hearing a lot more about justice issues, racial justice issues, and other kinds of justice issues. And then it's just interesting when we look at our, uh, our ability or our good fortune to have pleasant sense experience. And then like like I've been really appreciating just the, our house is just in a relatively orderly orderly state right now. When and I have done some work and we've yeah, we sort of fixed up over the years and we're kind of at a, a rust I mean there's lots that we need to do but like wash the windows, but generally speaking it's and so I'm really appreciating how comfortable it is and orderly it is and so when you bring something like that to mind, one of the things that you feel, one of the sense experiences, experiences of sensuality that correlates with you feeling like you're a happy person to some degree, then when we remember that other people don't have that, so does that make the happiness go away or not? And I don't know if it should, I'm just, I am just think it's an interesting question, or When you think about, honestly, all of the many, many supporting causes that allow me to have that relative affluence that I have and the relative comfort that I have and the relative safety that I have and how the fact that I have that and other beings don't have that is probably not really fair in in sort of justice sense of the word. right? It's not like, on some cosmic level, I deserve to have that, and other people don't deserve to have that. You know, well, I worked harder. But, you know, when we deconstruct that, we realize, yeah, but I, I had some supporting conditions for working however hard I did, and there are a lot of people who work harder and don't have that, right? And, by the way, there are people who worked even less hard and have more, so, but, but it's just interesting, like, what the joy, the happiness, the very real happiness of gratification. Like, I feel gratified having a nice home, safe home, nice backyard, relatively private. I can sit outside and be relatively private at our house, and I can take my shirt off and not feel like it's weird or something like that. Somebody can see me. It's not that easy. It wouldn't be that easy to see me when I'm sitting out in the sun. And our cat, you know, it's like has a decent life, and that's kind of pleasant. And but then, when I when I am willing to be sensitive to the all the causes and conditions that make it this way, make the central experience of my life the way it is, then is it still pleasant, still a delight? Or does it get ruined by guilt or ruined by, you know, whatever? So that's another thing It would be nice to hear from a few of you about some of these questions. So I, I do want to start a little bit at least the discussion of the drawbacks of sensuality tonight. And I have passed out uh, some emails, I mean some resources last week. Then I sent an email out later this afternoon, you may not have seen it yet, with more readings. All of them are, by the way, on our web page Buddhist Studies or oh one word dot dot org will take you to our Buddhist studies webpage. All of the resources are there. Probably more. Most of you aren't going to read all of them. So just kind of poke around, take a look, and see what seems like you're interested in. So don't get tight and try to read everything in a superficial way. But maybe a couple of those articles dig into or those resources dig into. But let's take some time now, maybe 15 minutes or so, and hear from some of you about your own investigation of your experiences of gratification. Just being interested in being sensitive to sensuality and what you've learned. What is the experience of gratification? What is the allure? What does it deliver? What happens when it goes? You've had a nice sense experience and now it's over, what's that like? Any kind of addictedness or enchantment or tug you feel, what's that like? What's it like when you reflect on privilege that not everybody has what you have? How does that change the experience of sensuality for you? So who'd like to begin?
2: I guess that's, um, I start with um, saying that um, happiness to me looked like a combination of different factors. Like you have one factor, your husband, your kids, your in-laws, your parents, your financial situation. Um, If everything, even if everything works out good, you can still be unhappy. Then you can, you can still be un, unhappy.
1: Yeah, if everything works out good, you can still be unhappy.
2: Yeah, because the way you look at things, little things can bug you to the end of to the infinity. Because if your pedagogy, the way you your your cause and effect has been defined in your mind, is not aligned with how things are happening. Um, you you won't be happy.
1: Can you give us a, an example of that?
2: Like um, you have a great house, you have great kids, you have okay husband, but <laughs> 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 but then but then your your sister. Make sure to
1: edit that out of the. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: that was a positive thing in my opinion, no. but still. Um, your sister has uh, similar things, but maybe in some ways a little bit, in some of the fact a little bigger in some of other factors a little less. But uh, still you have your eyes on, oh, she has this thing more than I do. And you forget about all the good things you have. So it is the view that is not Combining things to the right percentage, like so i I got to a point that i was uh, there was no change in my life, but there was this is the financial example, but there is also the same thing happened in the spiritual level for me because I was raised Muslim, and then I came here um went to church for ten, twelve years with my kids. And then um, so I was practicing both both religions. And then I am searching for the truth to see how one God can create things that are not similar. How can they conflict with each other if there is one God? So I'm searching that spirituality inside me, too. And then I'm unhappy with the fact that there is conflict in my heart. And uh, all of a sudden I read a book and plus come some combination of prayers that I have been looking for, gratitude, deep gratitude in my heart, changed my viewpoint. So I think none of those factors changed, even though they could be one that if it goes down the drain, if you have a kid that is not healthy, that causes a lot of uh, unpleasant situations but or feeling. But um, at least in my case, none of the factors changed. Um, it was just my view that changed and switched my unhappiness to happiness. And now even when things change, like one factor goes up, one factor comes down, I don't have control over my kid or all these things change. But... Um, when the viewpoint is correct, I I kind of collect all the good things, all my gratitude are fill, filling my pocket. So when I'm unhappy about something little, I have this bigger picture of, you know what, this is just 1% of the situation. Yeah. So happiness for me is mostly the viewpoint rather than just the event or the factor.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much, Raha. And and that kind of uh, just is a good time to remind us. So the class, the eight-week class, we're spending the first third really looking at this, and it's just following the way the Buddha taught about it, gratification. The middle third, we're looking at the drawbacks of sensuality, the limitations of sense experience. And the last third is this escape. And it's really to the point you made there at the end That what the Buddha realized in his own practice, what we're all realizing, is that the real um, catalyst, the real place of transformation is around view. Not about, I need a different sensual experience, I need more of this or less of that. I mean, we clearly we're still going to play in that world thinking that it matters. And it does seem to matter, which is why we keep playing in that world. But the more we observe our mind, we see that the real cause for happiness has so much more to do with view, the view the mind is operating under, than anything else. And once the mind really gets that, then sense experience becomes relatively unimportant, relatively unimportant, because the view the mind is living out of is just so much more the factor or the cause for happiness or unhappiness. Yeah, thanks for sharing, Raha.
3: Yeah, please. I would say two things keep me being happy. Um, One is a a fair amount of obliviousness to uh, material things. They just, I just don't really attach that much in some way. It just doesn't bring me a lot of happiness, so, so I don't look for it there. And the other one is, one thing is because I'm around people dying all the time, it really gets me like I just don't go to poor me as much at all. I just I just feel like wow, like I'm not in that bed today. It really does get me over things. Um and then the the maybe the most important I think is meditating and tai chi. Like the amount of sense pleasure I have from meditating and doing Tai Chi is like enough. So Yeah. Thanks, Han. Then I think you had
1: uh, Laura, right?
0: So one of the things you asked about was point it right like this now. <laughs> one of the things you asked about was sense experiences. So I have I have a little bit of a sugar addiction and a kombucha addiction. <laughs> so And I noticed that, like, when I have kombucha or I have, like, a sweet, it is kind of like instant bliss. And it is, like, I do enjoy it. And then when it's over, I'm like, okay, where's the next thing? (laughs) So that's one thing I've noticed. And then also, though, I've noticed that I've gone kind of depending on my budget. I'll have more or less in like a day or a week. And I noticed that my happiness doesn't really fluctuate whether or not I have more or less. But at some points in my mind, it's really kind of important. Like, oh, I'd really like that thing right now. Yeah, so that's what I'd like to share.
1: Did I share about the... Set point for happiness, did we talk about that here? i talked about it at the experienced practitioner retreat. Some of you maybe were there for that last weekend. But but anyway, there's a lot of research. Some of you psychologists know about this research about the happiness. There's a, a pretty resilient set point, and good and bad things can happen to us, but how we report our own happiness doesn't actually fluctuate so much. There are a few things that they found in the research that actually can shift how you interpret your own degree of happiness, like chronic unemployment and the death of a of a child, your child, can really drop your happiness, how you see your own happiness, and uh, consistently engaging in altruistic activities of your own choosing. You're not doing it because you have to, but you're choosing to be generous or altruistic, that that can increase your happiness set point. But otherwise it tends not to move. Even big things like winning the lottery or getting married or things like that, there might be a temporary blip up, but then very quickly, you know, in the matter of weeks, it's kind of where it was before the so called good thing happened to you, like getting a sense treat or kombucha or something like that, you know. And that's the thing that's like uh that's why Joko Beck has this great phrase the promise that's never kept cuz it seems like oh yeah it would be nice to have a little chocolate and in a sense it is nice to have a little chocolate but if we just keep observing we realize it doesn't really change anything and the same thing when we're avoiding something oh, I don't I really don't want to clean the bathroom or I really don't want to deal with this thing this email you know But the unpleasantness of dealing with that email doesn't really affect the sense of happiness in any lasting, meaningful way. It just seems like it will. Like, oh, dealing with that email is going to kill me. I mean, we even say things like that, but it doesn't. Yeah, other folks, yeah. Uh, Maybe Rebecca and then to Sharon.
4: Um, Well, that set point thing with the... um
1: Maybe I'll turn this up a little. It seems hard to hear, folks. Thanks, Steve.
4: Um, for me, my, my happiness level has been on a very rapid jump up um, due to generosity, I'm noticing. A um, little over a year ago, my husband bought a business, and I was like, OK. I walked in there. It was in really bad shape. And I just looked around, and initially I went, these people have been disrespected, no more. And since then, it's been this labor of love, of giving to this community we bought this business in. And every time I go there, I just, I just glow with love. I just, and it just, it's increasing and increasing. And I, and it's like, I'm giving so freely my heart, you know, along with, you know, um, making this business a, a nice place for the community. But my heart has just been expanding so much. And the more I'm there and it's It's just strange, I don't even know how to explain it, but um then Tuesday we got broken into, and I was there and i was I was there all day with locksmith, alarm guys, you know, police, and I was noticing an absence of anxiety or anger for the thieves and and I was paying attention and checking in. I was having great conversations with the customers. We were talking about collecting stuff for the Dakota Pipeline protesters. You know, all this was going on while, I mean, I just noticed that even getting broken into could not taint this love and this generosity. Like, it was so safe. It was so full and rich and safe. And I was very aware of, yeah, I'm dealing with, we've been broken into, there's a lot of expensive damage. It wasn't like I wasn't, like I was Pollyanna over that whole thing. I was very much aware of the business end of it and taking care of business really rationally. And it it was just so amazing to me that that could not touch this love, that this compassion has just grown. It's like every time I go there, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's like no stopping it. And it's just this this understanding of generosity from my heart. I don't know. It's just it's such a safety. I can't believe it, how it was so untouched. I, I don't know. I don't know. But it's to me, that's happiness. It's like this trust in this faith that all I have to do is love. That's it. I don't know.
1: And then the question is, because this is sort of what Raha was pointing to, too, I think. The question is, with these beautiful states of mind, these wholesome states of mind, is what are they built out of, right? And how resilient. So maybe it can resist a break-in, but maybe it can't be sustained if there was a murder, you know, or if there was... um, you know, some graffiti that was personal on the side of the building. Because uh, we, we want to be careful when we, when we find places in our life where there's a lot of wholesome, beautiful states of mind. We want to continue the investigation and see, uh, we want to see what the happiness is arising out of. And the question is always, is that, is that dependable or can that change? And you'll see, I don't know if we'll get to it today, but when the Buddha talks, I, I sent this sutta out a while back. It's from the Middle Link Discourses, number 13, this great mass of suffering, I think it's called. Let's see here what the title is. The Great Mass of Stress. Um, and uh, in that, the Buddha's talking about uh, the gratification, the drawbacks, and the escape from sensuality, from form, and from feeling. And with feeling, it's interesting that he, he, he goes right to the most exalted feeling. So the in people who understand or who study Buddhism goes right to the fourth jhana. So the mind is as pure, as still, as radiant, pure as it can be. I mean, that's really, it's like that's the, you know, that's the place where the conditioned mind is in its most exalted state. And so that's the, he says, that's the allure or the gratification of feeling. That there's no feeling, (coughs) there's no feeling better than this. And the word he uses is, I think, unafflicted. Let me just check. Make sure I didn't bring my glasses, but I think I can read it. Feeling, allure, one feels a feeling totally unafflicted. The unafflicted, I tell you, is the highest allure of feeling, right? So that love, that universal love would be an equivalent of that kind of unconditioned love. And it feels unconditioned, right? It feels unafflicted, like it doesn't have a problem. Except that it's still a condition arising. Your life has to be good enough to maintain that view. And if karma, if the fruits of past karma or whatever changed, you know, and you were living in one of those horror films, you know, so just one bad thing after another, the zombie apocalypse or something, you know, it would probably be different. And so even there to see that the drawback is that even that state, as beautiful and resilient as it is, it still arises due to causes and conditions. So the mind can't be dependent on the beauty of that state of mind. It's definitely to be appreciated as something really healing, really powerful, something to use to kind of manage the twists and turns of life, like exactly as your example gave, you gave, Rebecca. But this will be very interesting when we study what the escape is, because it's really about purifying the view. And, uh, and it's an, it will be also interesting because there's sort of uh, just an interesting question about love versus non-attachment. Are they the same thing? Can they be can they be understood as the same thing or is they, are they different? I think they can be understood as the same thing. It's really, I think it's okay to think of non attachment as the ultimate purification of love or refinement of love. Right? Yeah. I'll just leave it there because we'll, we'll keep. So we'll go to Sharon and then to Joe. <coughs> And Sharon, maybe better there because it starts losing because it's hard to get to the closet when you're right in that corner.
5: I appreciate the research you were citing in terms of levels of happiness not changing, and yet I really feel mine has. My base level, I think, has really changed due to this practice, particularly the gratitude practice, in that I find myself focusing on that so much more, which feels very stable, and um, and when I look back, it's very different from where I used to be.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, that actually fits with the research. It's just that your regular altruistic behavior is a little bit like what, what Rebecca was talking about. Because the attitude can be altruistic, not self-centered. And that will shift your set, your set point. And one of the things that happens when we're, we have more continuity of awareness is, it becomes intolerable to live with negative states of mind. And we'll find, through trial and error, we'll find ways to abide in more wholesome states. And we heard some examples today about how, how that happens for folks. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. Joe, did you get the mic? I think Joe was going to go next. Yeah, right here. Did you want to go next, one?
6: Try to keep this short, but a lot of these same stories has have um, come up with a story that I kind of want to share too something that just happened the other day. Someone broke into a window of um, <clears throat> vehicle in the, in the back of my um, and they broke into like a wing window, a smaller one, so I um, instead of like freaking out too much it was like well what 's gone? I looked through I knew i didn 't have a whole lot in there. Um, so then I made some calls, and sure enough, I don't have insurance for glass or whatever. took that off and and then found out um, how to find from a junkyard how to get a, a piece of glass for $20 and then talked to another person about um, getting glass. And I said, oh, I don't have insurance. Oh, here's the number for this guy then. And so I called this guy, and, and he charged me $20 to put put in the glass so i'm only out forty dollars <laughs> but you know i have to drive out to roseville and all these meet me in a parking lot here and just this whole scenario was just kind of just like wow okay you know the crazy race thing and and um but it all kind of worked out i only missed a little bit of time off from work is about the whole thing and but then just recently it's like oh i need my briefcase to write up a bid and it's like where's my briefcase maybe they took that don't know but you know all these little small things. So that, um, but how to handle these kind of emotional things? Um, I'm kind of um, feeling pretty good about myself for not freaking out too much and and feeling like there's so much loss. And so when you talk about the uh, affliction or whatever feeling, so when when these negative things can happen to me or even a positive thing too, just being aware of um, where I'm at and being settled about it all and looking at things, my mind thinks about, you know, is it good or is it bad or, or does it really matter or not, I'm trying to find that middle ground. So,
1: Yeah. And one of the great things about hearing these different stories is because we, we have to um, uproot this idea that the way the spiritual practice happens, the way we get enlightened is, I've got to do it, you know, and i got to stop eating chocolate and i got to be good in these ways. But that's not really how it works. The way it works is in hearing these stories and paying attention to our own life, we shift our view. And part of what our view is starting to do now, it's getting interested in the causes for happiness. And we're realizing, like we we're realizing and hearing it, these different people share bits of their lives, is that having a lighter touch, being in the world but with less attachment or with more love or more forgiveness, or that things work better, and so what we're doing is we're all we have to do is keep noticing this it's just a matter of noticing what doesn't work and noticing with what works, and everything happens because of that we're just correlating like I've said I think earlier in the class, you know we're collecting data and I I wrote this down. This is the email I sent out earlier this afternoon giving everybody some reflections for the small groups next week. And uh, I wrote, please take this week to more clearly discern the gratification and allure of sense experience and the drawbacks and limitations of sense experience. Remember the practice is to collect honest data. The purification of view that the mind has towards sensuality does happen because we want, uh, does not, I didn't put not in, but it should say, does not happen <laughs> because we want to shift our view, right? The view doesn't shift because we want it to shift. Rather, it happens because the data that the mind collects through being mindful overwhelms older views and beliefs about sensuality and allows for a new, newer more refined, wiser view to arise in its place. One theme you might use for your small group sharing is, what if any data has the mind or heart collected in the recent past that demonstrates the limitations or drawbacks to sense experience? So that's for next week's group. But like in terms of Joe and other people's sharings, it's like just for him to observe how he handled this, so-called bad experience of someone breaking his window and having to jump through these hoops to get it replaced, and, oh, but it wasn't as much as I thought, but, oh, where's my briefcase, and, you know, all those twists and turns, and then just to notice that the mind is less pushed around than he might have expected it to be pushed around, just to notice that it's that's that correlation, right, the mind's collecting data, oh, Oh, the not being pushed around feels really good, right? Because if we miss that, if we miss that the non-attachment is beautiful. We don't know, like when we talk about non-attachment, is that like the same as universal love to us? It doesn't feel that way. But we have to start seeing it in the same way. We have to highlight it as, it's a beautiful thing. It's like really beautiful, but we have these bad ideas of not attachment, being indifferent or being like I'm afraid of caring about, you know, my beautiful home or my nice car or you know, I, I know I shouldn't be attached to bad things happening. But to really like see it as a, like it's a, a glorious state of mind, like, yeah, I can deal with that, I'll deal with it, I'll I'll do this, I'll do that. Oh look at this person's gonna help me. Yeah, you want to go next was anybody after Joe? I forget. Okay. Cecilia.
7: So um let's see, I just um I, I, I was just thinking about how um uh happiness, unhappiness, or um I, I guess um I kind of like being unhappy sometimes, you know, I, um, you know, I mean, to be, to go in that place of being really sad, so, you know, it can be cathartic, you know, when someone, um, someone you care about, um, you know, gets sick or dies or, or something, um, to be, to go to that place of grief, you know, to really, um, give yourself over to it, um. It's I, I kind of don't see the difference a little bit between, you know, I guess I see it sort of as a continuum. Like um, um, I, I think in in this in this culture, we've gotten really attached to happiness like that. That is the place to be. Okay. And um, and I see it more like as a wave, you know, that that's continuous, you know, that 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 you're going to be happy. You're also going to not be happy, and and to you know to not take that as a failure or as um, as something horrible, but just as a state of being, you know. And I was reflecting on when I was meditating earlier, um, and when I started out, you know, I just kind of had this really peaceful body experience of being relaxed and everything, but um, partway through. Um, I kind of got hit with some sweats or something or other I could feel the heat prickling on my forehead and I was like oh I'm really uncomfortable you know and I started to get you know kind of agitated but and then I just started just looking at it you know and just noticing it like yeah this is really an odd experience or whatever you know but um to just be present with it um a, yeah, so um, so I guess I just wanted to give a shout out for... Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, what I for heard
1: you say was like a beautiful <laughs> definition of non-attachment. The happiness of non-attachment, right? That's what that wave is. Things come and go, but you recognize, you realize, it's an insight. You realize the heart's okay. Sadness is okay. Grief is okay. Joy is okay. You see? So... And this is an interesting thing, I mean words are always limited, but you know, when we're talking about happiness, we're talking about freedom. So in the sort of more grosser levels of happiness, and I really want some chocolate, and I make up a reason to go to the co-op, and I get some chocolate, and I eat some chocolate, then the freedom, it's not much, but it's I'm free of needing to want chocolate, right? That's the happiness. It's a limited happiness, but it's something. But there's a, you know, more and more refined or beautiful, substantial, resonant kinds of happiness. And non-attachment is just further along that spectrum of a more refined happiness. Because the happiness of non-attachment is not needing to be happy Right? Not needing something in order to be happy. That's so, there's so much happiness and not being dependent on things being this way or that way. Right? Like, not being dependent on having to be a happy person is its own kind of happiness. So it's always about freedom. It's just about how resonant that freedom is. Right? That's the thing. And when the mind... When the, when the view is the view of no view, right? The sort of more liberation from a Buddhist point of view. Then there's a freedom that can't be stained. The mind is waking up to freedom that doesn't come and go. That's how in Buddhism we talk about Nibbana or Nirvana or liberation. It's a happiness, it's a freedom that can't be challenged or stained in any way. And you can just intellectually get it because when we're willing to let everything be the way that it is, then what's going to interrupt freedom? When the mind is the mind and the activity of nature is the activity of nature, in a way the mind, the knowing mind, is also nature, but it's not moving. Everything else is moving. And when the mind that knows knows that everything that's moving is just nature and is okay with it being the way it is, then what could the problem be? And so that's the escape, right? That's where we'll go for the last third of the class. Any last thoughts before we take a look at some of the drawbacks? Yeah, please, Meredith. Maybe do one or two more folks before I just share a little bit.
5: Well, I was thinking more along the lines um, of not harming and relating that to sensual pleasure and find, for instance, that I was thinking of Ellis and her wonderful song about coffee and that first sip of coffee in the morning and then thinking about the whole pathway of coffee and and kind of exploitation that takes place of, of people who work in coffee plantations. And um but then being able to find coffee, for instance, that comes from a a farm where it's a cooperative and they're not using chemicals and harming the workers and a not a non harming way of having something that is is very pleasurable. And it seems to really relieve me of that feeling of, ooh, what am I doing to someone else by this pleasure that I'm having? So it's a little bit different take on it, but I certainly feel better about things like that cup of coffee and chocolate And there. We now have so many things that we can buy that come from Pathways that are, are really treating people in the earth in much kinder, gentler ways, more sustainable ways.
1: Yeah. And... And like in terms of freedom, like, and this is just a, a nice discipline. So when you're feeling happy, ask yourself, what is the mind free from? Like, just assume that the happiness is because the mind is free from something. I'm free from my desire for chocolate. So what Meredith is talking about in terms of the ethics of consumerism, it's like we can be free from remorse, right? Because now, having paid attention and been, full of care in terms of what we're purchasing, we don't have any remorse. We don't feel badly. We feel like it was a fair exchange and that we're not causing harm with our actions. And that's the bliss of blamelessness. That's a real freedom to tune into. That's a sense pleasure, to sort of live with integrity like that. Yeah, any last thoughts? Yeah, please. Say your um, name for everybody again. Hmm. Say your name for everybody. Donna. Donna.
8: Um, I'm one of those people who feels that I'm uh, much happier than I was 20 years ago. Um, and I'm not sure. I mean, I could come up with a couple of explanations, but I'm really not sure why, you know. But what I do notice is that there are a lot of There's some wonderful freedoms about being an old woman. But there are also many losses as we grow older, uh, things we used to be able to do that we can't do, one thing and another. And I think I'm fine with that for the most part. But then something will remind me. And it's usually a bodily thing, like a scent or a song. And I'll just feel overwhelmed with grief. And so then I say to myself, well, are you just kidding yourself that you're actually fine with these losses? I don't. I don't know how to think about that.
1: Yeah. Well, one one interesting thing is not to, you know, it's a habit that when we're feeling something deeply, like grief, that it means something more than we're feeling something deeply, like grief, and. You know what I mean? And the same well, we have to do it also with the positive end, like when when a wave of joy just sort of flows through, maybe we don't have to tell ourselves a story. Maybe it's just that wave of joy going through. And this is really again about escape because the thing about escape means the waves of joy, the waves of sorrow and grief are not the um, are not tied to happiness, the happiness that we're interested in. right? So as a normal person, our happiness is a function of the waves of joy and the waves of grief, the waves of sorrow, the waves of pain and pleasure. The eight worldly winds or the vicissitudes of life, most of you know that, teaching from the Buddha, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, And so our happiness is tied at this level. And then the more we practice, the more we find a a source of happiness that isn't pushed around, isn't a function of these eight worldly winds. The eight worldly winds still happen. There's still, you know, for an enlightened being, there's gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. You look, you know, however accurate they are. But if you look at the, the Pali Canon and the stories um, of the Buddha at the time when he was alive, you know, he all those eight things happened. There was a lot of praise and a lot of blame and fame and disrepute and pain and pleasure, success and failure. And so, but presumably for somebody wise, somebody awake, their happiness isn't a function of that Up and down. And that's what we've kind of heard in the different stories that people have been talking in terms of sense experience and and sense pleasure. Sensuality is this sense of space, having more space, still being a sensual being, aware of sensuality, knowing the difference between pleasure and pain, but somehow. The space of equanimity, the space of happiness, the space of love, not so much a function of the ups and downs as maybe it was when we were a kid. I remember very clearly as a child the suffering of wanting to go on vacation like the day or a couple days before and the anticipation. I mean, that was one of the questions I thought would be fun to talk about. And you could bring it up in your small group next week, but... Just uh, sharing a little bit how it still operates in your life. Anticipation, like when you have joys, you're going to go see a good friend, you're going to go travel with a friend or meet a friend um, or do something fun, whatever it might be. And how much of the happiness is related to the unpleasantness of anticipation? Or is it really unpleasant? But just to re- follow that cycle of the whatever that, however you experience the anticipation, the wanting it to happen, looking forward to it happening, and then it happens, to really look at, like, what what's really going on in our mind around these things? Like, I, I mention this a lot, but, you know, and it's not a big deal, but because I pay attention and because I can be more relaxed in this role of being in front of a group, I'll notice just, like, it's very interesting, and they just, it's like a flash, like, you know, like, oh, I haven't seen John Oliver's thing yet. I don't know, if he, he does this thing on HBO, which we don't have, we don't have a TV, but it goes, it gets put up on YouTube, I think, a day or so afterward, and he has this sort of newsy, funny program where he does a 20-minute riff on some terrible thing that's going on and makes it funny, but also is somewhat educational, and I like watching it, and it's like, it's Monday, and he did it Sunday. It's probably out there, and so that little kind of flash will go through my mind that, you know, and it's sort of like, oh yeah, something fun, right? And it's just sort of interesting, like, like an incentive to live, an incentive to make it until I get home. <laughs> and other days it might be, oh, we've got something in the fridge, or we have, you know, I can go to bed. It would be so nice to go to bed tonight. Or you know, I'll see Wynne. I haven't seen her all day. Or see my cat. And it's just these sort of little carrots, and it's really interesting to look and then to notice a sense of anticipation about it. And we don't really, you know, because it's all mostly unconscious, you may not initially like bringing it into the light of day, to sort of look at how you're incenti- incentivizing, incentivizing, yeah. is that you Your life. You know, it's like putting out another carrot, putting out another carrot. Yeah, Jane.
4: Uh, Some of the neurobiological research that they've been doing um, are studies that indicate that the you know whatever the brain chemicals are that that you know represent pleasure for us are actually there's more of them released in our minds um, in anticipation than there are during the actual event that
3: we anticipate.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so you see how that, you see why it is that when we've had the chocolate, what we really want is the anticipation. So that's why we got to pursue something else, right? Because it's the chase. I mean, they say this, that's like a cliche about um, people who date or people who fall in love a lot. It's like the chase. But then when the person turns out that they like you, it's like, well, that's so fun. You know, it's like, I was really into the chase, and so I've got to find somebody else to chase, because you like me, you know, or you want to be with me. Well, it's just really interesting to deconstruct the more grosser levels of the pursuit of happiness, because that will support the mind gravitating to more refined, resonant, more stable experiences of happiness. This is the whole path. And it's so much nicer to think of it as a refinement, a deepening understanding of happiness, of release, of joy. Whatever word you want to know, we're just getting smarter at it by paying attention. And as the Buddha said, and this is again one of these cliches, but probably maybe the Buddha was the first person who said it, but you know, a wise person is happy to let go of an ordinary. Um, happiness in order to receive, in order to connect with a more beautiful, more refined happiness. Right? Aren't we? Yeah, I'll trade that for this. We're happy to do that. As long, So the question is, like, are we willing to check out? Is there a more refined, more beautiful happiness? And this is why I mentioned about changing our attitude about attachment, or I'm sorry, non-attachment, because we want to check it out with fresh eyes. Maybe this is the honey we've been looking for. You know, non-attachment. Maybe use a different word. <laughs> you know, but the Buddha. The Buddha used a lot of the negative words like relinquishment, disenchantment, non-attachment, uh, <clears throat> because when you put it in positive, you can get back into that anticipation cycle. Like we could totally mess with their minds about wanting, anticipating enlightenment, anticipating <laughs> nibbana, right? And then we'd get it, it's like, no, no, I want to, I was really grooving on being the seeker, you know, being the spiritual aspirant, you know, and the tension and the hope and imagining how great it will be and this is it, this is equanimity, <laughs> So we have to cultivate a taste for freedom. We just assume we want real freedom, real resonant, unshakable happiness. But we have to cultivate a taste for it. This is the thing. Because we have a taste for really gross things like the chase. You know, like, yeah, just... uh, I just noticed, too, in terms of not even what I eat, but just how much I want to eat. You know, it's that, uh, yeah, it's just like, what? It's not even, doesn't feel good. That's the interesting thing. You know, to eat too much does not feel good. So what's, what's going on here? It's just so interesting. Or like uh, in terms of media consumption, like the, the tendency of wanting to be reading something, but also knowing what's on the radio. And I go, what's that about? Because it's that anticipate like something interesting might be there. Well, this bite, now, nah, but maybe the next bite. Maybe the next bite. Well, that was good, but what else could I put in the mouth? So it's always, it's the chase, it's the looking. And this is a nice segue, although we're out of time, but uh, re- do some of the reading, some of the study, and of course we've got several weeks to dig into the drawbacks, but it's the tuning into this addictiveness to the suffering of attachment, the suffering of a mind that is dependent on the chase, on the getting, and always hungry. And in Buddhism, you know, we've got these amazingly provocative depictions of the hungry ghost, it's a being with a huge appetite, but a, a mouth the size of a pinhole. So they could never satisfy their appetite. Yet, No matter how fast they ate, they just got to deal with their small hole. So, um... Check out some of the, uh, like one of the things I wanted to read tonight, you might want to read. I think it's a very accessible discourse. Some of it's quite graphic when the Buddha's describing some of the ways they tortured people because he's, he's basically saying all the torture that happens is also the, re- the result of identification or attachment to sensuality. And, uh, but it's this one I mentioned, the uh, great mass of stress. And I think I might have sent it out the first week, Uh, but it will be in one of the emails and it will be up on our webpage. But let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take a couple breaths together. Inhabiting this world of sensuality. Seeing it as our teacher, teaching us what leads to happiness, what doesn't lead to happiness. May we all be good students.
5: This talk, like
0: all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs,